Good morning, and welcome to episode 503 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, a writer for Grantland.com, with Sam Miller, editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Hi, Ben. How are you? Okay. So, congratulations to Ryan Webb, who won a game on a walk-off by Manny Machado. More importantly, finished the game. The win is immaterial. All that matters is that GF next to his name. That was his 86th career game finished. Somehow we neglected to mention that he finished a game last week. I was not notified. I don't know how that happened. Heads will roll. But he is up to 86. In Matt Albers' news, Matt Albers will throw a bullpen session this Friday. And reportedly, or according to him, his shoulder is feeling, quote, pretty good right now. So those are words that would strike fear into Ryan Webb's heart. It's uh, amazing how fa- I mean, how much the leaderboards changed this year. I mean, Webb started the year as just sort of a something to mention so that the, the, so that the weirdo topic had a little bit of depth. But, I mean, Albers was our guy. He was, mm-hmm. he was the, the champion. Webb was a distant thought. And, uh, and yeah. now Webb has run away with it. I don't know if Albers will ever catch him. I mean, especially, uh, you know, well, Webb has the, how, how, okay, Ben, here's, mm. here we can, don't look. Okay. How old, how old do you think Ryan Webb is? I'm not totally sure I could get within four years. <laughs> yeah, one. I don't know. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that Albers is older. Um, I'm going to say that Webb is... 29 and i'm gonna say that albers is 31 those are both good guesses i'll say 29 sounds right i'll say 33 for albers all right let's find out ryan webb is 28 he turned 28 this past february albers is 31 Ooh, i almost almost nailed it i know my webb and albers (laughs) so that's the uh that's the seventh Win, uh, I guess, I guess you'd call that a walk-off win. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the seventh walk-off win for uh, for Ryan Webb. We talked about their, didn't we talk about their walk-off performances? I, I don't remember that. We've talked yeah. about them so many times. Who knows? Um, okay, so that was that was a good day. Ryan Webb finished a game. Vin Scully's coming back for his 66th season in 2015, which mm-hmm. is always always welcome news. Um, and also there was a, uh, there was a little mini game that, that Clayton Kershaw played on the Jimmy Kimmel show, uh, like a William Tell exercise where Kershaw threw at an apple that was on top of Kimmel's head. Mm-hmm. And if Kimmel had listened to us the other day when we talked about pitcher's command and how the average pitcher misses his target by close to 14 inches... He probably would have been more worried about the about having a baseball thrown at his head by Clayton Kershaw. And as it turned out, Clayton Kershaw did not hit the apple. He missed the apple a few times, and then he hit Kimmel in the head. Do and- you, uh, first of all, I, I will just go on record as saying that I do not believe that that ball hurt Jimmy Kimmel at all. I think that no. that was a, a rubber baseball, mm-hmm. and they should be ashamed for acting as though it were <laughs> at all realistically a baseball. But here's my question. Mm-hmm. That was probably what he was 15 feet away, 20 feet away. 
Yeah, and aiming and and aiming passing. at a, and aiming at a target. Yeah, throwing not as hard as he as he could, and uh, and aiming at a apple on a, a man's head instead of a, a catcher's glove. Who do you think is actually better at that at that challenge, uh, Kershaw or you? Because <laughs> Kershaw um, really, you could tell, didn't really know how to do it. Like he, yeah. like he was sort of doing frustrated. that Kershaw. You know how he has that hitch in his motion. Mm-hmm. It, like he couldn't sort of decide whether to do that or not. It was really funky and awkward. He kind of looked like a right-hander throwing left-handed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I would take Kershaw over me in just about any life activity, but but you might be right. His his advantage is probably diminished in that instance, which is not not his typical delivery and target. Okay, uh, so this is the listener email show. Anything else you want to talk about before we get to some emails? Yeah, well, I, w- I would like to thank people who responded to the uh, to the Independent League uh, episode. We had responses from a current Independent Leaguer, a the father of a former Independent Leaguer, uh, a uh, broadcaster in an Independent League, uh, who, a broadcaster for the Sonoma. I believe Sonoma Stompers. I'm going to double check this. Um, and uh, he invited me out, and I'm going to go see the Sonoma Stompers um, sometime soon. So uh, thanks for that. Uh, and Justin, the Plumber Pipe Fitter Union, do you want to talk about this now, or is this going to be one of the, e- the emails? Uh, it, it was not. Yeah, go ahead. So uh, we talked about radio ads in uh, episode 500 and how much I love them. And in particular, I singled out the plumbers and pipe fitters union commercials because you never hear them advertise anywhere else and justin uh is actually a member of a pipe fitters union <laughs> says we found out a few years ago that the sheet metal workers union our rival was going to be broadcasting during twins games so we countered by doing local advertising during the ncaa basketball tournament we had never advertised like that before and we haven't since <laughs> uh, which is exactly what i love about union advertising no mm-hmm. nowhere else uh, <laughs> and so then you and i had the exact same question which is why would the sheet metal workers union be a rival of a pipe fitters union those are two different unions they should be solidarity mm-hmm. uh and justin explained uh that uh well okay i, I think I'll, I'll try to explain it quickly but basically so justin is not a pipe fitter or a sheet metal worker. Mm-hmm. He is a uh, HVAC service technician, and he. So they're sort of rivals because, like, there are there are kind of people who don't quite fit into plumbing or sheet metal, but could fit into either. So for HVAC, uh, pipe fitters do gas and water piping when used for heating, cooling, and refrigeration purposes. So logically, the guys who work on the machines that the piping is connected to should be in their union. However, sheet metal workers make the ductwork that is also connected to heating cooling units. Therefore, we could be in their union as well. And so there's bickering over um, which, uh, which laborers will fit into which members. So uh, now we know a lot more about, <laughs> about plumbing, pipe fitting, and uh, sheet metal unions. I uh, am very grateful to Justin. This is a top five email, I would mm-hmm. say, in show's history. Yeah, I was excited too. I've, I've long wondered about that since, since my childhood listening to WFAN and hearing those ads and wondering what a sprinkler fitter was, which yeah, is the, also something Justin told us. Yeah, he says that in, in, uh, there are sprinkler fitters who only work on fire sprinkler systems and he says, in most big cities, we are in different local unions. On a national level, the three unions organize and negotiate together. So on, in a big picture kind of a thing, <laughs> they, are, uh, they are allies. He then adds, but not the tinners. Screw them. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think Justin's email was really an ad masquerading as an email. We just yeah. advertised for the Plumbers and Pipefitters Union. Can we just, I don't know how Sean Foreman would feel about this, but what if we just started doing <laughs> Plumbers and Pipefitters Union ads in the second half of the show? We yeah. wouldn't have to even charge them. Yeah, sure. Do it for free. All right. Uh, so other listener emails. Let's start with Chad who asks, which will happen first in Major League Baseball, a batter with a five-homer game or a pitcher with a five-strikeout inning? Oh, that I bet that came in like 10 seconds after yeah. Zach Greinke had struck out four in an inning, and the fourth one uh, was also in the dirt and required a throw from the catcher, and it wasn't really in doubt uh, at any point. It wasn't a close play. However, if a uh, if the throw had gotten away, I'd say there was probably a, like a 1 in 12 chance. I mean, it did require a throw. It wasn't mm-hmm. a tag. So maybe a 1 in 12 chance that it gets thrown away, and then maybe like a 1 in 3-ish chance at that point that he strikes out the next day. So we got reasonably... That, that, might be, that actually might be the closest baseball's ever gotten. It won't be remembered, but that might be the closest Major League Baseball has ever gotten to the five-strikeout inning. We don't know. And that does seem like the the more like does it seem like the more likely? I mean, it's uh, you could well, one could fig- yeah right one could figure out the probabilities involved and and have an actual answer. Maybe someone will want to do that, but but yeah, it's I mean, it's more likely that that will happen than it used to be. Whereas it's not really more likely that a a five homer game will happen. So, so but if if I told you, the thing is that most guys who hit four homers. So I don't know how many five, four strikeout games there have been. Do you know or four strikeout innings? Do you know how many four strikeout innings? Mm-hmm. Um, let's say that they are somewhat comparable. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna actually I'll know. Pretty no, I won't. Uh, yeah, yeah here's, I will. Here's okay, a, so there's been 32. 32. 32. Mm-hmm. Unless they're uh, 32 in yeah. the American League, 32 oh, yeah. in the American League, and then 40 in the National League. So 72, mm-hmm. and then there's been like a like a dozen or 16 four strikeout four homer games. Yeah. So the thing is, though, that most guys who hit four homers have a fifth at bat in that game, and and some of them occasionally will have a fifth at bat even after. And yet, but the four strikeout guys, they almost never get to like. It's very hard to then get a fifth batter in that inning. It's like I doubt anybody's ever struck out four and then faced another batter. I would I would just go out on a limb and mm-hmm. say that nobody's ever faced a fifth. Batter batter after striking out the first four so it's not exactly like they have the same chances it's really hard that how many strikeouts there are so many strikeouts ben mm-hmm. uh that um uh what was i saying i forget oh yeah there are a lot of strikeouts however how many dropped third strike batter reaches are there there's like probably a hundredth as many as there are home runs mm-hmm. and so I don't know that the math is actually that simple. Like most mm-hmm. times when a guy strikes out four strikeouts uh, in an inning, there's no avenue for expanding that. Um, it's almost impossible. You have to. It's basically what are the odds of two things happening? One of the things happening is two dropped third strikes in five batters, and the other is pitcher striking out all five batters. Although of course an inning can go more than five batters. Yeah. But like, how many innings do you even think there are where there are two dropped third strike? That might actually be the better comparison. How, mm-hmm. how, I wonder if there have been more innings in which there have been two or more dropped third strikes with the batter reaching than there have been you know, four home run games. Because mm-hmm. those don't happen very often. No. Hmm. Which would you rather see? 
Oh, it's, it's stupid. Five home runs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Next question is from Mike. With Jeff Rancourt and Jason Lane now on the Padres roster, could they effectively and strategically use both guys as both pitchers and outfielders? Isn't having a reliever with the ability to play a defensive replacement level outfield to facilitate late game matchups a strategy that has been underemployed? I can see an athletic guy like Drew Storen pitching to right-handed batters and then able to hold his own in the outfield for a left-handed batter or two before he comes back into pitch. Wouldn't this add value and differentiate many of the middle to late inning relievers? Um, so this is a, a thing that happens every now and then. Um, it's rare. It's, this is uh, this is Rob Rob Nyer's favorite thing, right? The the Waxahachie swap, uh, the the Paul Richards technique that has happened recently. I think Rob has documented every known instance of this or every instance of this, and there have been some fairly recently, and it and it makes some some statistical sense. And and sure, if you have Francoeur and and Lane who were obviously able to play outfield then you would want to do that but I guess I guess you'd you'd need to neither of them is a, a specialist right it, a reliever that you would necessarily want to play matchups that much with um, it's not like having a, a loogie or a rugi who can also play outfield at least I don't think I don't know about their splits I haven't looked at their splits but that would make it more valuable, but I guess if you if you bring them in and you want them to to face some some righties, then then they'd be among the best people to do it or the most capable of doing it. You wouldn't have to worry about them totally flubbing a fly ball. So yeah, sure. ni- neither one adds enough with the bat or the glove. Uh, sorry, yeah, neither one adds enough with the bat or the glove that you particularly want to keep. You know. Neither one is a good pitcher either. Like, yeah, they're not good is the problem. No, right. They don't actually have... They have a broad-based bad skill set. Yeah. It's like, do you, oh, we've 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 found a way to get more Jeff Rancour and Jason Lane <laughs> in the game. Like, we never have to take them out. They're terrible at everything they do, but they can now be 70% of our team's action. Like, <laughs> that's the problem with both of those guys. Like, you would yeah. actually like to pinch hit for them, put in defensive replacements for them and bring in relievers for them <laughs> at any point that they're active in the game. So that's part of the issue. Uh, although it is tempting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next question from anyway, and yeah. I'm watching a video while you were reading that I was watching a video of Joey Gallo hit a grand slam out of the Ugh. stadium Ugh. and like he hit it out of the stadium. And this mm-hmm. is, I think this goes to my point. This was linked on a blog, a well-read blog, I imagine that I'm going to see retweets of it. And my point about home run highlights and home runs in general is that they're actually very rarely aesthetically pleasing. They're, it's fun to see them, the swing, because you know the ball goes a long way. But the actual sight of the ball traveling is often not that satisfying. Like, you have a hard time picking it up. They're, they're crazy misleading. Like, a lot of times, like, a ball down the line that goes 430 looks like it's, it's gone to Jupiter. And you know a ball to dead center or to right center might go 480, and yet you you don't quite have a great scale for where it is. And you know a lot, a lot, a lot of time you don't even see the ball land. You don't really know. And and then furthermore, there's a lot of like fly balls to shallow left that look pretty amazing if you don't 
cut because you don't sort of, sort of realize that it's off the end of the bat or the handle or whatever. So I find it to be a little bit of um, your brain is priming itself to be impressed by a thing that it isn't actually capable of comprehending that that well. So this Joey Gallo home run, which, like I said, I I expect I will see tweeted multiple times in my timeline, and it's an MILB TV video, so you can imagine mm-hmm. how good it is. You basically see a swing, <laughs> and then you hear an announcer kind of freak out, and then you see like uh, the camera pulls up enough for you to see the center fielder, and that's it. That's the entire. <laughs> and then it sort of shakes around like it's like where. Did it go? And then you see Gallo running around. You at no point are you aware for sure that there's a baseball mm-hmm. in this picture, uh, and you certainly don't have any sense of how far it traveled. And yet, people are going to act like this is a worthwhile thing to watch. Ben, this is my point about home runs. We gotta get Gallo in HD. He's got to mm-hmm. be rescued from MILB TV because he hit mm-hmm. he hit like 15 balls out of Target Field during batting practice before the Futures game. We need to need to see this more. Joey Gallo home runs. Once we can see where they go, I think you will be entertained. I would say draftable. That a Joey Gallo home run would be something that I would draft. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, okay, question. I have from... no. By the way, I have no idea whether this ball went to right field, center field, or left field. <laughs> Can't tell from this. Uh, uh, wait, Gallo. Pro- probably le- Probably right center. Looks like. Can you send me this highlight? Yeah. All right. <clears throat> okay, next question from Paul. You spoke about contenders last week, and given the time of year, most teams should have an idea where they stand. What do a team's playoff odds have to be in order to consider themselves a contender? Is it as easy as saying that if current playoff odds plus the marginal project- projected odds gained after making their one, two, three, four, or five deals, whichever you prescribed last week, to improve is greater than 50%, you are a buyer? And if less than 50%, you are a seller. Do you consider this to be an appropriate gauge? Or should the 50% threshold be adjusted down if teams value the wildcard game less than division series? Are playoff odds the best measure of contenderness? Huh. Huh. It'd be nice if we knew the playoff odds for each team for the next year and and the year after. Because what you really want to know is, does the the move uh, increase your playoff odds more this year than it hurts them next year right and and probably with some discount for next year because next year might never come mm-hmm. uh, we might all be you know in a pile of smoke by then mm-hmm. uh so uh but you don't you don't actually like that's the thing that we're really guessing on like it's kind of funny because we try to do these these analyses of the team's needs and we have we have with pretty good precision we know what their next two months are and then we we go through this very elaborate math to try to figure out like what their next eight years are going to look like when really we have absolutely no idea like beyond beyond a year or two from now we have no idea like even even like 2017 i don't feel that confident saying that the astros and the cubs are going to be great like i feel pretty you know pretty good saying some of those players are going to develop but you know it's we know much less than we think we do once we go a few years out uh, I would say though that I feel pretty good about a team doing something at thirty percent. Mm-hmm. It it sort of depends on where they are in the cycle and various mm-hmm. things, but depends 30, how how much 30, of the playoff odds is division odds and how much is wild it, card odds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But thirty percent feels like a team that's uh, worth watching. So. Yeah, uh, our friend of the the podcast and listener to the podcast, Michael Bauman, wrote a thing for Grantland the other day. Uh, a 
blog post applying economic theory to MLB trade deadline decision making where he came up with an equation that teams should use to decide whether they should make a move at the deadline or not. And he it was all theoretical. He didn't run through the the actual math so much or he he sort of did. He took he did one example, um, but he he had all these variables like contender status and you assign it a number and then you figure out what the future contender status and there all these uh, sort of unknowns and assumptions that you make there. So uh, teams maybe run through some some sort of version of those things or 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 not. Maybe they just kind of uh, go with their gut about these things. I don't know. I don't know how how rigorous the process is by which teams decide whether they are buyers or sellers, whether it's so, kind of a feel thing or whether yeah. they actually run run the numbers. Probably depends a lot on the GM. And it probably depends on the GM's life cycle to some degree too, because I, I'm looking at this right now and you have the, the, I said 30% and 30% would be 12 teams right now. And I think, I think that all of these teams should rightly consider themselves in it. Tell me if you disagree, but the Orioles, the Blue Jays, the Tigers, the A's, the Angels, the Nationals, the Braves, the Brewers, the Cardinals, the Pirates, the Dodgers, the Giants. All those teams seem completely in it. Not all of them are looking as aggressively to, to buy, but all of those teams would make sense as a buyer and certainly aren't you know, anything like a seller, right? Those mm-hmm. are 12 good teams. So then that kicks out probably three teams that are currently currently see themselves maybe as buyers, the, the Yankees, the Royals, and the Mariners, who are all between about 18 and 22%. And I think that um, those are those are tough calls for all of them, um, but two of them have GMs who are wobbly chair, right? Mm-hmm. And so it could be that that's a part of the math. I mean, if the I mean, you look at the Royals. Nobody's talking about the Indians as buyers. The Indians have slightly better playoff odds than the Royals. No wobbly chair, mm-hmm. and. Um, uh, you know, nobody's talking about the Rays as potential buyers, although they've come off of their selling, uh, and they're pretty much right there with the, uh, you know, with the Mariners more or less. Mm-hmm. So, especially with, let me see, yeah, especially actually with adjusted playoff odds, which gives you basically a fifty, only about half the value for the wild card win because you have to flip that coin. Uh, the Rays actually have identical to the Mariners, basically adjusted playoff odds, mm-hmm. and so one team wants. To David Price, and the other team's going to sell David Price. Uh, so maybe that's that's what maybe that's the wobbly chair in action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be. I've watched the Joey Gallo Grand Slam. I think it's clear that he pulled it. I think you can tell from the the initial trajectory of the ball and the direction that he's looking that he hit it to right field. But but you're right. As soon as the ball exits the frame, that's that's the end of that. There is the camera work is. Yeah. Is non-existent essentially. You just see the see part of the diamond the whole time. I just got an article idea, Ben. <laughs> good. I'm not gonna tell you what it is, but I just <laughs> got one. It's gonna be good. It's gonna be a hit. Ooh, it's always a nice feeling. All right. Uh, Typing it to myself. <laughs> um, okay. This... Oh, it's gonna be good. I can't wait. All right. Oh, I, I'm envious. Okay. Uh, this question comes from Andrew P. My question is about Dan Ugla. So as Grant Brisby has already posited multiple times, Dan Ugla has been so bad 
that the Braves are paying him a lot of money to play elsewhere. That is, that's clearly the, the case. Uh, the Giants signed him to a minor league deal, which was much heralded by the fan base as a no-risk option to which Grant and many other writers cried foul, as Dan Ugla can in fact be worse than what they've got now, and the Giants have a habit of letting such players do so. Lo and behold, due to injuries, they called him up and he was predictably horrible. What I found interesting was that in every interview I heard, they claimed that the real plan was to let him work out his kinks in the minor leagues for roughly 10 days, see his opt-out clause on August 1st before promoting him. My question is, does this rationale hold any water at all? What could the Giants have found in his swing that could be rectified in one week in AAA that can't be rectified in the majors? If this is impossible, then why sign Ugla at all? Is this purely an F you to the fans who wanted Dan Ugla, i.e. you want this guy? Fine, you see how bad he is? Are the Giants just flailing around wildly in hopes that something might stick? Any insight would be great. Andrew also offers to attend an independent league baseball game with you sometime. Uh, so yeah, this is this is flailing around wildly, right? That's all. That's all it is. It's it's Joe Panic is playing second base, and Marco Scudero is is not himself and is hurt, and and you signed Dan Ugla because you've heard of him and because uh, and. <laughs> Because he's there, and because he's been good at points in the past, and I don't know, Sabian likes to bring in veterans, and every now and then they occasionally do something crazy. So yeah, I mean, this is this is like this is like ninety six percent of the same DNA as the Pat Burrell acquisition, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Like if if Pat Burrell is a is a hundred on the Pat Burrell plus acquisition mm-hmm. scale, then Ugla would be like ninety two. Mm-hmm. 94 he's not he's not quite there but you know he was worse for a little longer um and um people hate him more i guess <laughs> mm-hmm. but uh but basically this is what Bur- i mean okay so burl so ugla basically was pretty good in 2012 you know mm-hmm. he led the league in walks which is a weird thing yeah like, probably people don't really remember that but two years ago in the same league as joey Votto. Dan Ugla hit 220 with the league lead in walks. Um, yeah. And then he was really bad last year, and uh, everything collapsed, but he still drew a lot of walks. He hit 22 home runs. His BABIP went bananas, and he had a 671 OPS. Mm-hmm. And then this year, it got worse. He finally got waived with a 472 OPS. So then Pat Burrell, pretty good with the Phillies. In 2008, really good, pretty good. Uh, signs a two-year deal with the Rays, which made you know everybody like Pat Burrell because the Rays don't sign no junk. Uh, he immediately sucks. Hits 221, draws some walks, hits 14 homers, 682 OPS. Next year, even worse, 625 OPS. Terrible, terrible, awful. They they get rid of him after only 96 plate appearances. The Giants get him. He's a total hero for him. He he even has to stand in the field. And he's still a total hero for him. He was he was good down the stretch. People liked him. He's uh, you know a scout now. Everything good <laughs> came out of that. So uh, yeah, I mean, why why wouldn't you get Dan Ugly? I mean, it, sure, he could be worse than Joe Panic, and Joe Panic could be worse than Joe Panic. Like it's hard to say that in three weeks the the actual worst case scenario. Uh, is predictable or was able to be anticipated. I mean, yeah, Dan Ugly could have his worst three weeks of his life. Um, but, you know, he's not on it. Like, I feel pretty confident. I feel very confident, in fact, that Pakoda likes 
Dan Ugla more than it likes Joe Panic. Yeah, and, I, public, I, and, I, and Brandon Hicks. Yeah, I just looked that up while you were talking. Ugla's preseason projection coming into this year was 272 true average, an above average hitter. Uh, Panics right now, his projection is 238. So mm. that's a big difference. I don't, I don't think that anyone would would subscribe to the Ugla projection. But at the same time, we've we've talked about how people are not necessarily that good at. Uh, at, at outperforming projection systems, so yeah, and so Brandon, who knows? And Brandon Hicks, two thirty-five true average, two thirty-seven projected, better fielder, clearly, mm-hmm. but still. Mm-hmm. All right, this question comes from Miles. Let's say there is a player who is just called up to the big leagues for the first time at age thirty. He is a strict first baseman. How many consecutive home runs would he have to start his career with to be considered the best baseball player of all time? Let's assume lightning strikes him after his first out, rendering him lame but not dead. I'm not that cruel. What, Ben, what is this question? So all he ever did was hit the home runs and make a single out. Uh, guy guy comes up at age 30. How many what? home runs in a row does he have to hit? To... Wait, why did he That's a good make question. the out? Oh. Why did he make the out? Uh, I think he's saying that once he what does... What is the out after this? <laughs> The out is that uh, after he makes the out, lightning strikes him and he never plays again. <laughs> so, oh, wait. So oh, he, he's oh, hitting consecutive home out. runs until Sorry, he, so, yes. So after his first out, okay. So, yes. so I thought that he made an out in his first at bat and then lightning struck him <laughs> and made him good. But yeah. I also don't know why he has to make an out. Why couldn't he just have lightning strike him um, in, at any point, like how yeah, many? Yeah, sure. Let's say he I, never makes it. I'm out. not going to get hung up on that. So, <laughs> uh, player gets so the, called up. Big, well, okay. So, so the record is is what four four home runs and four consecutive plate appearances. There was a there no, was a yeah. No. I think so. No, it's five. Is it? I don't think it is. Really? There was a Diamondbacks minor leaguer who hit five in five consecutive at bats this huh. year. And I don't think that I think yeah, that right. is that's never been done in the majors. Um, that's incredible. Yeah, it's surprising. So everyone, so everyone who's yeah, so right, yeah. So uh, Carlos Gonzalez hit four in a row in 2012, and yeah, no one's no one's improved upon that. So, um, so that's not really all that relevant. It's it's not like he's going to be considered the best player ever if he does do it five times. So nope, it by law. By law, if he does five, mm-hmm. he's the best. In it. He's the best who ever lived. If he uh, does that, and his his first out is someone's fifth strikeout in an inning, then he's the best player ever. All right. So there's 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 I guess there's two questions here. Uh, I it's, I almost hesitate to say this, but there's the realistic answer and the non-realistic answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the realistic answer is like if he did say. I would say 17 and then lightning strike. Mm-hmm. I would say that for that his legend would be strong enough that people would say it for 100 years. They, like, they would talk about him as the greatest ever, but oh, but for it got cut short. Now, yeah, the average. I don't, I don't like, think the, he has to go to 17 to get that status. You don't think so? No. I think. I think I mean, well, it's, it's not. It's no not one's, seven. No one's ever gotten past four ever, and this guy is coming out of nowhere. Um, so I, I think. I know, but if he's he, a thirty-year-old rookie. If too. he doubles it, 
I think he just has to double. I think if he no. does it oh, eight times. On. He's a 30-year-old rookie. I mean, it, it, you think if he hits eight in a row and then disappears forever, people are going to say, well, he probably was better than Babe Ruth, but we'll never oh, know. No, I think, his, I think his legend will live on forever. That's what you were saying, right? But no, I don't think I'm anyone... I'm not saying will. that people would talk about it. I'm saying like somebody, somebody somewhere, like I would say at least 12% of baseball fans would say in seriousness... That he might have been that he you know that he either was or would have been the greatest of all time except for the lightning strike. I think it depends on his origin story. Like was he? Why is he? If he's right. If he's Toe Nash, that's one thing. Yeah. If he's, if he's Steve Tollison, that's another. Right. Why? Why was he not called up until age thirty? Was he languishing in AAA for years, or did he just get spotted by a scout and show up at a tryout camp and? Well. The question, the I think the question is trying to steer us toward he was unaccomplished and unexciting before this happens. Because by saying he is a strict first baseman, I think, I mean, that obviously isn't actually relevant. We're talking about a guy who's only going to play for like seven or eight games. So who cares? So I think Miles included that detail because he doesn't want us thinking that this guy is otherwise, that, that you can make a, a case for him otherwise. Like mm. the entirety of his accomplishment is in this thing that happened once. Mm-hmm. And... I think that if he, so I don't, to me, seven, we forget about it. We don't, I mean, we don't forget about him, but he's just another one of those baseball things. Yeah. So seven doesn't get me too excited. I think uh, double digits it's going to be. I already gave you my answer. Why am I talking? <laughs> 17. Uh-huh. So that's uh-huh. the realistic. The unrealistic where analysts, where like uh, you might convince Jay Jaffe that he's uh, one of the greatest of all time. Mm-hmm. That might be probably not that much more, but forty-five. <laughs> um, sure, yeah. I, it's really it's well, yeah. Maybe if there's if there's a mechanical change that explains this, right? That would that would help, right? Because if if uh, I mean, it would take a long time for me to ignore several seasons of undistinguished stuff in the minors and him coming up but if he suddenly had some sort of like jose batista like explanation for how he you did really this, you really think a guy's gonna hit even 10 in a row and they're not gonna find an explanation yeah, for you they right. have an explanation for everything if a guy goes three for four in spring training mm-hmm. they have an explanation yeah, there will right. be a narrative you don't need to worry about lack of narratives about this guy yeah you're right okay so uh yeah, I'll say I'll say twenty five. Okay. <laughs> okay. Wait, twenty. Okay, yes, yeah, sure. good. Um, good, good answer. Thank you. Want to do play index? Sure. Um, this one I kind of. Well, you'll see. So uh, I saw a stat today on some Twitter account run by MLB. Seems like they have a lot of them at this point. Mm. And one of them tweeted a fun fact that Craig Kimbrell has uh, 18 appearances in his career, 18 saves in his career, where he faced three batters and struck out all three. This is, I believe, known as the Kimbrel in some circles. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has 18 of them, which is the most in Major League history. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Craig Kimbrel is, like, 25. <laughs> and he is already has a record in accounting stat. I guess he's 26. And he already has a record in accounting stat. And... Uh, it just blew my mind to think that there's a guy who's 26 and has a record, even a, you know, a very specific 2014 fun fact style record, um, 
already. And so I started thinking, uh, and he actually has the record by a lot. Number two is 14, I think. Hmm. Uh, so I started trying to figure out if anybody else has a record that's that young, who mm-hmm. is that young, uh, has already set a record. And so obviously we know that, like, for instance, uh, rate stats are easy. There's somebody right now has the best strikeout rate in history for a reliever, for instance. I'm not talking about rate stats. I'm talking counting. I'm not talking Mike Trout has the best stolen base success rate in history. That's a rate stat. I'm not talking anything that is single season. I'm not talking anything that is... Um, most X without Y. I'm just talking, you count the things and there's more than anybody in history has ever done. And so here's the problem with this play index idea I had. It was an hour of me running queries and getting (laughs) none uh, for the most part. I found two, two that are kind of useful. It also has, ideally it was going to be a positive thing. Uh, So I found two that are, that are arguably these things. But I thought that while, while you have me, uh, Mm -hmm. I have play index in front of me. Would you? Cool. Do you have an idea for one that might happen, and I could I could run it real quick and see if uh, <sighs> who the record holder is if it's somebody young, mm. somebody young and active. It would. I'm trying to think of things that have changed in the modern game as much as strikeout rate yeah. has. Uh, yeah. Um, I did that too, but I also, since I did this for an hour, I did everything. <laughs> uh, by the way, this is not one because Randy Chote is 38. But I learned that Randy Choate has the record for most appearances in which he hit every batter he faced. <laughs> Nobody in history has had more appearances than Randy Choate's six appearances in which all <laughs> batters he faced were hit. That's a good one. Yeah, it seems like they're... So that's obviously... That's a, a corollary to the strikeout rate thing, the, the short relief mm-hmm. appearance thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, like most... Most appearances facing one batter, or you know, with with fewer than fewer than an inning pitched or something. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, Mike Myers has every one of those. He <laughs> has the most one batter appearances. He has the most uh, no out appearances. He has the most appearances in which he struck out every batter he faced. He has the most appearances where he walked every batter he faced. He has the most appearances where he. Allowed a home run to every battery face. Mike Myers has a billion one out, one batter <laughs> records, it turns uh-huh. out. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't know. You don't know? You can't, you don't have even one that you want me to run in real time. That was kind of one, but you already but did I it. But I ran it. I ran it. Yeah, I've already <laughs> done it. Sorry, think of one more and I'll pretend I haven't already done it. How can I outthink an hour of you thinking in, in a minute? Um, <clears throat> What else has changed? Uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Well, here's the two I found. Both of them are, are barely things. Okay. But if the Kimbrel is a thing, then these can be things. But they're barely things. Uh, they're almost the exact same thing, too. Uh, Matt Moore has the most ever <laughs> five and a third inning scoreless starts. <laughs> with three uh nobody's ever thrown more um and scott casimir has the most ever six inning scoreless start <laughs> like i said same thing uh casimir though that's a uh, that's uh, that as you know from my box score thing that's yeah. uh, part of the time there's a, a lot more really good 
six inning starts. That was one of the things that when I was looking up every box score earlier this year to see which pitching lines were new, had mm-hmm. never been done before. Uh, I I knew to zero in on six inning good appearances, particularly high strikeout, low walk appearances, because these are all outings that that would have earned the pitcher a seventh, eighth, even ninth inning in every previous generation. But these days, you go six, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they say thanks for the effort. That was great. Mm-hmm. So Casimir has fourteen of those, fourteen six inning no run starts in his career. Uh, nobody else in history has more than three. Casimir is I think twenty eight right now. 29 maybe so uh so that's another one that's a record oh he's actually 30 third turn 30 this year mm-hmm. okay okay so if you if you have any ideas for yeah if you can possible find one, records yeah let us let us know and first no, 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 no ideas no ideas i'm not running these for you no play index absolutely not 30 dollars yes. bp promo mm-hmm. code bp 30 mm-hmm. bucks and uh if you find a good one um we'll forget to mention it <laughs> right. Okay. Question from Brandon. I was thinking a little bit about spending in the MLB draft. Could you envision a scenario, even one that's borderline slash completely hypothetical, where a team would be willing to intentionally overspend its draft spending limit and take on the consequences for doing so? I imagine such a thing wouldn't be practical in real life or would require a perfect storm of factors that would make it worthwhile. A few factors I'm thinking of off the top of my head. A team would need to be in a worst-to-first situation where they're drafting in the top 10 because of a bad previous season, but will be drafting in the 20s the next season and likely for seasons to come. That's a good good one. The future year's picks could then be seen as expendable if they find the right players this year. A team would be banking on signing a big-name free agent or two or more in consecutive seasons. And since they'll already be forfeiting their top picks because of overspending the limits, they would only have to forfeit a third-round pick. Uh, a team would have to identify at least three first-round-level talents in one draft and be able to acquire them in the later rounds to make up for picks lost in future years. This would require an ideal situation where talented players drop and then keep dropping when teams realize they can't meet their contract demands. The only way I could really see this happening is if certain players start falling, a team in a situation like this notices and then decides on the spot to execute the plan. Plus, since prospects will break your heart, it's too risky to really go beyond all-in and forfeit so many future picks. There are probably too many factors to make it work, but it's a fun thought experiment. Would love to hear your thoughts. So um, so the Indians did this year. They exceeded their bonus pool. And um, so the thing about the, the penalties is that um, they're progressive. So the more you go over, the more it costs you. So you could certainly, and, and it's good that they did that, because you could absolutely imagine scenarios where, like in this year, it's such a d- deep draft that you could say that there are three or more. I, there might even, I would say there probably were even more than three first-round talents that dropped you know, past the 10th round. That if you really wanted to just say nuts to it all, this is going to be the year, you could easily get enough first-round draft picks this year to make up for uh, losing a couple next year or whatever. The problem is that the more you go over, the more it costs you. So um, the penalties are, as such, 0 to 5% over your bonus pool. You pay a tax on the overage, which is nothing. Every team should do this every year, right? Mm-hmm. A 75% tax <laughs> on the overage. There's no, there's no way that you're not getting uh, a yeah. 75% discount. On, on draft players. Those guys are all should be paid more than 75% more than... You're only paying 75% on the overage. So 
Hmm. If you go over by three hundred thousand, you're paying two hundred thousand. Like that seems like a pretty good way to break the rules. Uh-huh. I'm surprised more teams don't do that. So yeah. like Astros Russell and I talked to to Kylie about how the Yankees totally blew up their, their international spending national. draft this year, and the penalties for that were pretty severe. And this seems like it would be a, a much better move. So like the Astros, for instance, um, could have gone over by six hundred thousand this year without going over 5%. And it sort of feels like, I don't know, that wouldn't have been enough. 600000 wouldn't have been enough to get Mac Marshall. But I'm surprised that they didn't seem to be intending to get Mac Marshall mm-hmm. all along. Like, Mac Marshall was a, a backup for, um, uh, uh, blanking on his name, the other guy, the fifth-round guy. Was uh, fifth Jacob Nix. Yeah, Jacob Nix. Um, but uh, it seems like with that 600000 to play with, um probably would have been worth kind of exploring things with him all along. But, uh, yeah, I would gladly go 5% over. All right, anyway, the next uh, the next tier is uh, 5% to 10%. You pay the tax and you forfeit a number one pick. Uh, and, of course, we know that if you, at a certain point, you're losing two picks because that's what the Astros uh, would theoretically be in danger of losing if Major League Baseball forced them to, to honor their uh, Knicks contract. Um, so... Um, those are, yeah, I don't have much to add besides the, the email mm-hmm. and the fact that I could read a couple of rules out loud, everybody. Yep. That's good. All right. Uh, last one from Robert, usually in Pasadena, but tonight in stormy Chicago to Sam and the pickler. That's a callback to my pickling days. Um, mm-hmm. Two questions. The first one are questions that are asked on Mondays or Tuesdays more likely to make it into Wednesday's show than questions asked on Thursdays or Fridays. I'm sure I'm not the only listener who's idly answered this, wondered this, uh, and I would I would say no. Um, I think probably probably the opposite, but not not yeah. not a huge yeah, difference. Does, but doesn't really matter. Know, I think that we're. What do you? I mean, I don't know. A lot of times we don't read any of them until. Uh, the day of, and I, yeah, I, I at least glance at everyone when it initially comes in, and I, then... yeah, I used to, I used <laughs> to, and I still do a lot, but uh-huh. a lot sometimes I don't, so uh-huh. it goes both ways. But I do like to have time to think of them and if uh, think about them, and there are a lot of questions that we get that I'm not really ready to answer in an hour, but I would be after a few days, and those ones if they come in on Tuesday, they, they don't have much chance. Mm-hmm. If they come in on Thursday, they do. Yeah, we got a we got a lot of questions that are good questions, but that even after a week, I wouldn't be prepared to answer because they just require a lot of research that that we don't have time to do for a, an answer on a listener email show. But but I none, nothing really slips through the cracks. At least before we start recording the listener email show, I go back and look at every email from from the previous week since the last week's show. So so I see it at least. Uh, and then Robert's real question. Is is a home run from a player you're absurdly overpaying, like a BJ Upton or an Ugla, worth more than a home run from a surprisingly well-performing rookie who is making the minimum and delivering plenty of bang for the buck? I ask because recently when Chris Young actually hit a home run for my Mets, I felt a brief, a brief reprieve as in, oh, at least he's a little less of a disappointment for $7 million than he was before the homer. That got me thinking, is there a difference? Is a homer simply a homer? Or is there more value for a team to get value from players they've paid more for? So I, I guess we could talk about it in terms of psychological value as well as value for the 
for the team, the money is already spent. So unless you're, I guess, trying to trade the guy, um, in that Which case, you might be. Yeah. yeah, you might be. So, so you're sure. Much, yeah, yeah. Well, I was gonna say you're more likely, but you're actually maybe not more likely than a young player. Young players get traded. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that. Uh, as a as a fan, I would rather see a home run from the overpaid guy because the, he's overpaid for a reason. He used to be good, and uh, you're thinking, is this home run um, uh, foretelling some good things in the future? Mm-hmm. And you know that he's got he's got a good history in his past. So, like if Dan Ugla hits two home runs tonight, for instance, mm-hmm. I'm going to be much more convinced that he's going to have a Pat Burrell type uh, summer than if Brandon Hicks hits two home runs tonight. Because mm-hmm. uh, I never thought Brandon Hicks was ever going to be good uh, or will be. Um, however, probably for that reason, the answer is probably the opposite. Uh, it's It seems like it's much more likely to buy a player who's not going to be good a longer stay if he already has money invested in him. Um, teams uh, you know, aren't super great about walking away from players they've they are currently paying money to and if it makes you more likely to put a terrible Dan Ugla into the lineup for too long then you would ever be likely to put a terrible Brandon Hicks or a terrible Joe Panic into the lineup uh, then it could actually be bad for the team so mm-hmm. probably that's probably the answer yeah good answer okay so that's it for today we just got a promising cricket related email but we'll save it for next week Uh, You can send us those emails, which we will see no matter when you send them, at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. Now up to 1,628 members. Uh, You can rate and review the podcast and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Just type in Effectively Wild, go to the page, click on the number of stars you think we deserve, and leave a message if you would like. And that is it for today. We'll be back with a new show tomorrow.